Greetings, people. The day after we recorded this episode titled Cannabis 101, President Biden issued a pardon for all people convicted federally of simple marijuana possession. This pardon encompassed 6,500 people nationally. He subsequently called on governors from across the state to follow suit. He then asked the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services and the U.S. Attorney General to look into and research the Schedule One classification for cannabis as it sits on the th same threshold as drugs like LSD, heroin, and fentanyl. President Biden said, and I quote, too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana, and it's time that we right these wrongs. So please enjoy this episode titled Cannabis 101, and remember, knowledge is power. Welcome back to another episode of Fortitude. I am JW, the guy over there, Britton Payne. You probably remember him. Uh, brought to you by our friends at Captex Bank. This studio, in fact, is brought to you by Captex Bank. Thank you, Mike Thomas, for doing these wonderful things for us. Yes. Brenton, today's show is a unique one for us. It delves into a subject uh, very taboo in some people's minds, uh, has a certain stigma to it, but today's show's about cannabis, also known as weed. If I haven't gotten fired and lost all my clients yet, today's the day. Well, we're going to do our best. <laughs> our goal here at Fortitude is not to promote cannabis and weed. Our goal here is to learn something today from a gentleman sitting to my left named Mackie Barch. Mackie is one of the more knowledgeable people in this realm, and I he's a friend of mine. I've known him for a while, but he is very knowledgeable, and, and, and he knows a lot of things about this world, this culture that most people, I suspect, suspect uh, do not. So thank you, Mackie, for being here today. Hey, thank, thank you, you for having me. I appreciate it. Excited so to be if here. you want to know about weed, folks, just sit back and listen up because we're about to get into Where it. Where did this name come from, Mackie? Mackie Barch. Mackie Barch. Mackie was my grandmother's maiden name. And in the South, there's an old tradition to name your firstborn male after the maternal grandmother's maiden name. Nice. That's my middle name. It's my grandmother's maiden name. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. um, no, that's wrong. That's it's my grandfather's okay, last Okay, continue. Name. Let's go down What about Barch? What kind of name is Barch? I have no clue. It's a cool last. I mean, yeah. it's like it rolls. Fairly man. certainly, cool. we are a Euro mutt family. Yes. We, we have yeah. a hard time yeah. staying, staying on topic. Yeah. But How now, did you get into this? Let, let's start with cannabis in itself, Brenton, if you don't mind me interrupting you for a change. <laughs> you go ahead and yes. you do the structure part of the show here. Mackie, let's start from the very beginning. Um, well, before we talk about cannabis, yep. you hail from Kensington, Maryland. You are the chief cannabis officer for a company called Colta, which you founded in 2015 in the state of Maryland. Uh, you attended CU Boulder. But Colta, the company, is a vertically integrated cannabis company which cultivates, extracts, processes, distributes, and retails all legally across the state of Maryland, correct? That is correct. Uh, you are the chairman of the Maryland Wholesale Cannabis Trade, Medical Cannabis Trade Association. Yeah, it's a mouthful. CanMed, I think yep. we call it that. Uh, other than that, though, I've my time with you, I've got to know a lot about this industry and this world, but I'm grateful for your time on this show, so let's get right into it. Cannabis, weed. What is the what is cannabis, and how did it become a thing in our in our culture? Well, you know, first of all, I think people need to understand the history of cannabis and how we got to where we are today, because I think it's one of the least understood stories in this modern woke culture where everybody wants to be a social justice warrior. The fact that more people don't understand the story and don't really understand where our modern prison system came from, I think, is criminal. And so when you start to understand the history of cannabis, you really begin to understand, you know, how we got to where we are today with the war on drugs and this idea of why we have this, um, this fear of cannabis and why we have the, these fears of compounds that have been criminalized in our mind with a very intentional purpose. So cannabis has been used by, by you know, uh, you know by, by people since probably since the you know, third millennia, probably pre-Neolithic. And it's been through our history forever for rope, for food, for fiber, for all sorts of things. And, you know, really um, in 1850, you know, cannabis was recognized as a pharmaceutical compound that was added to the U.S. pharmacopoeia. It was around the 1850s when the first pharmaceutical companies were beginning to be developed, not only in the United States, but overseas. Now, you got to remember. Prior to 1850, we had no drug companies. Everything yeah. was plant-based yeah. medicine. I remember growing up in a house with my grandmother. She had a big book on the table, all about plant-based medicine. She was born before the turn of the century or right around then. Excuse me. She was born in like 1920. And everything, she grew up on a farm and everything was plant-based medicine. So our, our medical history is based in plants. 
it's only in the last couple hundred years that we've got away from that plant-based history and we've forgotten a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But specifically with cannabis, cannabis has a really sleazy story associated with it, which has always been intentional. So around 1906, we began to regulate cannabis, but we started regulating lots of other types of drugs. After the American Civil War, the, the U.S. population began to get hooked on opium. And what had happened was people were dumping drugs in all sorts of different stuff. And we think about the history of Coca-Cola, which was cocaine. Mm -hmm. All these mixes had opium, cocaine, cannabis sativa oil. And the government said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, You know, we have the the temperance movement going on. We have all these housewives getting addicted to opium at home through laudlum and all these other types of drugs. We got to start regulating things. So around 1906, we began to see things starting to be regulated. Now, Fast forward to 1916, the U.S. Department of Agriculture did a study on hemp. They put out a paper called Hemp Herds and something else, and I forget the exact exact name of the paper. But what they said was, is that hemp was a far better product for the production of fiber and paper. Well, a few people went crazy over this, specifically Willem Rudolph Hearst went nuts. He was the richest man in the United States at the time, owned all the newspapers. The DuPont family that was working on the first phase of nylon and another guy named Andrew Mellon, who I'm sure you all know about, who are all heavily invested in these sectors. So at the time, Andrew Mellon was uh, the secretary of the treasury and his wife was married to a guy named Harry Angslinger. So they came up with a plan to create something called the 1937 Tax Stamp Act, which effectively would make cannabis illegal because it was competitive to a lot of their financial interests. So they were very successful in getting the Tax Stamp Act passed. And shortly after that was passed in 1937, we saw our first two cannabis arrests. Uh, One guy whose name I forget ended up doing four years at Leavenworth and the other did 18 months. For using or carrying or- For having and being in possession of cannabis. Now you got to remember for hundreds of years, people used cannabis as a medicinal drug and all of a sudden it's now illegal because it threatened the interest of a certain group of people. So what was going on in other parts of the world at the time? Did they not have the same things? No, not not at all. I mean, every country approached this differently. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not familiar with what Europe did at the time, but if you have to think about- you know, Asia and these other parts of the world, they were completely undeveloped for the most part. And then let me ask this, because this I always think about this in regards to this plant too, like from way back when, and even in your grandmother's book, it's like, who picked this plant? Like, I mean, how many plants were like smoked and died from before this was like, this is the one, you know, like, how does that all work? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a long conversation to get in all sorts of other medicinal compounds because mm-hmm. you have to understand there's parallel tracks going on here. Uh, yet Albert Hoffman's discovered of LSD shortly, you know, that's going to be coming up, I think around the 1940s, I believe, something mm-hmm. like that. But one of the most insidious things that we did is cannabis was always referred to as cannabis until 1937 when they took a made up word called marijuana. that was intentionally uh, a word to basically debase Mexicans. And they added that to it because Harry Angslinger was a big, big uh, racist guy. He has a lot of famous quotes where he basically used race to kind of gin up this thing that cannabis somehow would assuage the virtue of the white woman and said it was a drug that was being used by Negroes and Hispanics and all this. And he really ginned up this this racial kind of stereotype to cannabis Mm -hmm. use and used the word marijuana to further kind of echo that. And if you do a little research on him, there's some famous quotes uh, that he has out there, but the, the guy was very racist and really used cannabis to really drive a wedge between minority communities and white communities. The word real quickly, marijuana though, is it's a, it's a made up English word. I thought uh, thought it came from other sources. So, so my understanding of what, so in 1937, actually marijuana was spelled M A R I H U A U A N A. And that later was changed. But again, these words were taken from, I believe, Mexican communities and they they were kind of morphed into this political weapon. Now, where things begin to really go parabolic is really kind of at the end of Vietnam. So you got to really understand what was going on in the United States around kind of the late 1960s. So the U.S. entered the Vietnam War in about 1955, went to 1975. But we know, but by 68, We now have, you know, the civil rights movement has been in full swing. You know, we have, you know, the whole hippie movement. We have Mm -hmm. Woodstock. Our our dogma in this country was you go to war, you die for your country, and you come back an alcoholic. 
You look at World War One, you look at World War Two, you look at Korea, and then all of a sudden Vietnam pops up. You have people going overseas to Vietnam. South, you know, Southeast Asia is full of cannabis. It's full of opium. And for the first time, you have this consciousness movement of people questioning, why are we here? Why are we going through this? You couple that with the civil rights movement and, you know, everybody that's in power going, well, it can't be the people. You know, we couldn't possibly be wrong. You know, we're, we're above, you know, this is, this mm -hmm. is, it can't be us. It must be the drugs. Mm -hmm. So Richard Nixon is elected in 1969. But right prior to his election was a really interesting Supreme Court case, which was called uh, Leary versus the United States. So in 1965, Timothy Leary, you know, the famous Harvard professor yep. and, you know, tune in, dropout, acid advocate, was taking a family vacation uh, to Mexico and happened to be in Texas, was trying to cross the U.S. border into Mexico, was rejected, got pushed back into the United States. They found marijuana in his car. Well, he took it all the way to the Supreme Court and had it overturned. And so now the 1937 Tax Stamp Act was going to be overturned. Well, Nixon's head explodes. And he's like, we have got to get hard on drugs. And this is where the war on drugs mantra started to come from. And I think it famously in 1970, it says, you know, it's public scourge number one. So he does a couple of things. The first thing he does is form something called the Schaefer Commission. And the Schaefer Commission was a setup commission that was supposed to study cannabis and then come out and basically say, it's the worst thing in the world. Everybody's going to die. You're going to get lung cancer. You know, this is the worst thing ever. And the Schaefer Commission comes back and says, we should legalize this. This is a waste of time. And Nixon is incensed. He is pissed. And so parallel to that, he came up with two other things, the Controlled Substances Act, as well as the Drug Enforcement Agency. Okay. Yeah. The Drug Enforcement Administration, excuse me. And so while they were going through the Schaefer Commission, they temporarily put cannabis onto this, the schedule system, which was Schedule 1, and they never removed it, saying that it had no purpose for any medical research or any, anything medical or, or medicinal, and it's never left since then. But with the formation of the DEA, it gave them all sorts of new powers to be able to go enforce it. And you know, I, I brought this in for your for your listeners because I, I think it's it's one of the most powerful things that you can ever hear. So uh, on his deathbed, the architect of the war on drugs, uh, which is a guy named John Ehrlichman, uh, was interviewed about the war on drugs and what the intent of the war on drugs was. And I want to read this quote because I think it's that important. Um, when asked about the war on drugs, what he really knew about, he, he quoted, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or be black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Good God. Mm. Unbelievable. Now, what happens is, you know, after that, there's kind of like a quiet period. And then you start getting into, you know, the, the Reagan years, not shortly thereafter. And really, since that happened under the Nixon administration, really nobody questioned it. And what happens is as this thing goes parabolic. And if you really look at the arrest rates, I believe around 1980, there was roughly about 40,000 African-Americans in U.S. prisons. And I think by 2009, that number had gone to closer to half a million. Our prison population today, um, I believe, is almost 2 million people. 50% of all people that are sitting in jails are from drug arrests. We have tens of thousands of people doing life, life sentences for nonviolent drug crimes. And this has all started intentionally to harm poor communities. And the, the, the problem with this whole thing was that we actually stopped all research. We study everything. We have some of the best scientists in the world. You know, we think about the FDA pathway. We stopped all research on cannabis and we stopped all research on psychedelics. And if we look at the, you know, the suicide rates among vets that we have today, mm -hmm. we should be researching every compound out there that we can do to help people. If we can relieve suffering and we're intentionally not trying to relieve suffering, it, it's criminal. Let's go. Can we go on a little thread on yeah, for sure. Path down here, you yeah. mentioned how it's uh, be associated with uh, helping people and people getting in trouble for it. But can we compare cannabis to pharmaceutical drugs? And you know, big pharma obviously is big pharma, and the cannabis culture is they kind of coexist in a world where they don't agree with one another. A lot of people will give up um, big pharma drugs for cannabis because it seems to be more helpful. But what's your what are your thoughts on those two? 
Well, I, I think there's there tends to be this this duality where there's like one camp that's oh it's pharma only and another camp well I want plant based medicine I mean the truth always for me at least lies in the middle, which is like I think a great pathway is to always try to start with plant based medicines. Can I not go into pharmaceutical drug first? Can I try something else before I go to right. you know to basically to more westernized medicine? I think if we think about plants, which is kind of more of an Eastern type philosophy trying to find that balance and that symmetry between both mm -hmm. is, is really important. But if we think about what big pharma has done to people over the years, because it's a corporation and all really pharma is, is following certain protocols to get a certain indication of use. And then you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Purdue Pharma. If we needed an example of what, you know, Oxycontin and, and those types of drugs have done to the United States, they've barely been held accountable. You know, you cannot die from a cannabis overdose. Now, you might think you're dying. You might feel like you're dying and you might want to go climb in the corner and, you know, be in the fetal position, which happens often when people overconsume edibles. Or ask your wife to hold your hand or something like that. <laughs> what are you looking at me for? I don't it's know. Weird. I was just... Forget, forgive the interruption, Mac. No, it is quite all right. You'll, you'll get used to it here quickly. Yes, but, uh, you know, it's, it's um, you know, and then we think about alcohol. Yeah. You know, alcohol and cigarettes kill a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the annualized cost of, of alcohol, it's something like $200 billion a year in cost of alcohol between healthcare, car accidents, mm -hmm. uh, missed work, you know, all these associated costs. And so- Who if, calls in sick to work? You know, I'm too hungover. <laughs> like, I don't know how they, they get that factoid. Like, they really mm -hmm. do get the fact, you know? But can I ask you something yeah, on please. that? On the um, big pharma stuff. Cause yep. I wrote it down to, it's like, do you think that the kind of that, the, the fentanyl like issue, just like you mentioned with, per, like that's bringing to light, like, wait a minute, maybe we're a little too tough on some of these other drugs. You know, it's like all of a sudden it's like the dupe is up, you know, like, I mean, these guys, like the recklessness in that has maybe swayed people the other direction on some of these other drugs like marijuana. Well, it's easily, well, so first of all, you have to understand with the war on drugs, there's been a campaign to brainwash people about having an open mind about what is right and what is wrong. And I think that's one of the things that we have to work really, really hard against is to educate people. So let's, let's pretend for a second that we, that Texas was getting ready to vote on a legalization effort. By you voting no or not voting yes, you're not changing anything. See, the, the cannabis demand in the United States averages somewhere around 15 to 16% of total population. Mm -hmm. So any day in Texas, 15 to 16% of the population is smoking cannabis, whether they got it from out of state, whether they got it from a cartel, whether they grew it at home, they're doing it anyway. Just because you're not voting yes on a referendum doesn't mean that you're changing anything. You're just pushing that person down a path to somebody that probably has fentanyl or probably has other types of drugs you don't want them to do. Plus you're not taxing it, plus you're not testing it, and you're putting them at risk and you're putting the population at risk. And in a state like Texas that screams, oh, liberty and independence and all this stuff, people should be you know, allowed to have personal independence over their own. Well, it's it's interesting you say that because it was actually a you know fairly conservative representative who brought forth the um, the CBD types of laws that were passed in the Texas legislature. But on that, I had also heard um, that when you do it the way we've done it in Texas, where you do medical prior to recreational, you almost create a black market within itself. That it's like if you don't do this is what somebody from in the industry told me one time. If you don't do both at the same time, what you do is you create a, a system where someone's going um, and getting like the medical grade stuff and then selling it to all the recreational users, right? So can you maybe talk about that? Yeah, I think what you're referring to is diversion. And there, there's typically two steps when you legalize a market, which is first going to be medical. Medical gets everybody comfortable with the notion that, you know, that there's nothing crazy is going to happen. The world's not going to change. And then with a number of years after medical passes, you know, adult use is, is typically legalized. Uh, what you're referring to is medical patients getting their card, coming in, buying a lot, then reselling it to their friends. Mm -hmm. it, it, somebody's reselling it to their friends anyway, whether it's the illicit market or whether it's the friend that now bought a product that's actually safe and tested. Yeah. And so, you know, you have to make as a, as a citizen, where would you prefer people buying stuff from, from a regulated entity or a non-regulated mm -hmm. entity? And so just because you want to sit on the sidelines on the issue, you don't have a choice. You got to pick a team. And so, you know, most people, I think, would say, look, if I had to pick, I want to I want to pick a legalized pathway for for most people. 
Right. Mackie, why, why are the, the sudden, not sudden, but last couple of years, many states think more, more there's, a, there's a quorum, I believe now, of states have legalized marijuana in some form or fashion, Texas not being one of those. But why is there such a big movement for all these states legalizing? And obviously you come from Maryland where it's still only medicinal. You guys are fighting for recreational. You've told me that. But why are all these states now coming to the fold, even when the feds still have it as a criminal uh, product? Well, if we think about the age of most of the people in the U.S. Senate and we look at our president, for example, I mean, Joe Biden specifically was one of the architects on war on drugs. And so Joe Biden, when he was in office in the 80s, came up with three strikes. So the 1996 crime bill or Mm -hmm. might have been the 94 crime bill, I don't remember, you know, came up with mandatory minimum sentencing, three strikes rules, all these people that allowed you know, the, the prison population to boom. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people get confused and think that this is partyism on cannabis. Let me tell you, it's, it's more age than it is party. And there is no love in the democratic party for cannabis. Yeah. Now, especially Joe Biden, Joe Biden can't stand it. I mean, so Joe Biden, when he first came into offer fired somewhere around, I believe in somewhere on 40 to 50 staffers, that, you know, had, you know, legitimate cannabis cards were legitimate cannabis users, got rid of all of them. And so if you think that your party is better than the other party, let me tell you, they're probably not. And the problem is when you institutionalize something like cannabis and law, people always think it's like a pen stroke to get rid of it. Laws are kind of like spider webs. You got to kind of peel them back. And so they take years and years and years to peel back. But the federal government has been really disappointingly slow to have any incremental game. So right now what we have um, is a lame duck session coming up in November. Uh, we're very hopeful that Senator Schumer and Senator Booker will allow safe banking to go through. If we can get safe banking to go through, that will be the very first piece of federal legislation that we've had to start moving the cannabis ball forward. And it will at least allow us to actually start using federally chartered banks. Now, Safe we do, banking is where they can use a credit card or a debit card to buy it versus just cash, how it is now. Yeah, that's Well, it's a little bit correct. And so basically, when you have a, you have two different types of chartered banks, you have federally chartered banks and state chartered banks. State chartered banks that are in states with legalized programs can, can bank cannabis companies, but we can't use the big banks. And so we can't use all the big insurance providers. We can't use mm-hmm. all the good companies that all you guys take for granted. Mm-hmm. We always have to use B, C, and D vendors for everything. And we have to pay more to do it. And then like say, thank you for allowing us to pay our insurance bill. Yeah. You know, and so from, from a, from a PL perspective, it, it makes it very, very difficult. We can't send wires. We can't do all this stuff. And it's, it makes running a business real hard. Surely. Well, and and dangerous in some instances too, right? Because at the beginning of all of this, I heard that there were guys who owned dispensaries or product companies and things like that who were running huge sums of money just like in cars and stuff. Like, I, I mean, that there was like just a lot of cash and, and banks do not like the cash word at all. Right? Well, well, it's I'll tell you a funny story. So when, when Colorado first started, um, and there were no banks. I mean, Safe Harbor is the big bank out in Colorado. The feds still get their tax money. And let me tell you the biggest racket in cannabis and who makes more money than anybody in cannabis is the U.S. government. And a lot of people don't know this. So, so in cannabis, you are beholden to Section 280E of the tax code. You are taxed as a federally illicit business. That means you're not taxed on the net line. You're taxed on the gross line. And so the only thing that you can deduct legally is cost of goods sold. And so you're paying at a much, much higher effective tax rate. And in Colorado, what they used to do is take boxes and boxes of cash and drive it straight to the IRS office and they drop it off. And the IRS always made sure they got paid. And so, and right now, I think there's a lot of legacy cannabis companies that have been taking deductions that they probably shouldn't have been taking. And when the audits do start and the IRS has kind of laid off the industry for the most part, I think a lot of companies are going to have trouble because they've been taking normal business deductions. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of, a lot of audit issues for some of the companies that were not 280 compliant. Well, maybe that 81,000 uh, hiring of new IRS agents is a precursor for no doubt legislation moving in this direction a little bit. Yeah, sure. Maybe uh, we'll see. Mackie, before we get on too far from the comments on the war on drugs, I'd like to ask you because I'm, I'm, very curious, but is it fair to say that the war on drugs, as we all generally speaking know it, is an abysmal failure? Well, if we think about the cost of the war on drugs, I think somewhere the last quote that I saw is we're spending somewhere around $47 billion a year to prosecute people. 
I think one of the things we've learned from criminal justice reform is that we have got to stop putting addicts in prison. It's not making them any better. Addicts need rehab. They don't need prison. We've got to focus our dollars on violent crime. If we look at all the cities right now, you know, if we think about why people dislike police officers, it's because the police officers were forced for decades to enforce an unjust law. What if the police officer's only job were to deal with violent crime? You think anybody would have a problem with police officers enforcing violent crime? I don't think anybody would, but when you're smoking a joint, when you have a cousin that's an addict, and you know many law enforcement officers, they don't want to enforce these laws. They'd rather be focused on violent crime. You know, it's it's really caused a chasm between society. And I think as, as we mature and we start to kind of get these laws ratified, allowing police officers to use their time to focus on violent crime and not focus on these social issues is a much better use of, of their time. And then to take these dollars, which I think have cost us a trillion dollars to date on the war on drugs, and start focusing rather on prisons than to rehab. We're going to get better people. People don't become drug addicts because they want to become drug addicts. They become drug addicts because they have trauma. They have drug addicts because they have, you know, psychological issues. And we've got to figure out how to better direct our dollars rather than putting people in prison. Because once we put somebody in prison, there's a carrying cost to that because now we can't employ them because now we ran their background check and now they don't qualify. And, mm-hmm. you know, if we could take 50% of that prison population and make them productive citizens, that's much better for society than putting them in jail. That is fascinating. Well, it, you know, but the, it, my question that I, I begging to ask here is, though, is it? Because the flip side of that is, you're talking about a trillion dollar industry here where there are jobs at prisons. There are jobs supplying all the food to those places. There are jobs in the whole, like, like there's an industry here that exists on the other side of it. Right. Too. Yep. And, and, and I'm, I'm only asking is like that yep. too big to fail. Like, is there, well, I think you're, you're looking at one side of the equation. We have been arresting minorities in this country at such rapid rates that we don't have men in communities and it's disrupting families. Mm -hmm. When we take men out of communities at at multi-generational rates, who's raising those kids? And if we look at the violent crime problem we have in the United States, it's kids. Mm -hmm. It's 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds that are shooting each other at record rates because they don't have fathers around because we've been locking them all up for for petty crimes they probably shouldn't have gone to jail for. Mm -hmm. And so if we can get refocused on rebuilding communities, keeping people employed and trying to keep violent offenders in jail, you just can't look at that one cost. You got to try to analyze the whole societal cost. And I think as this war on drugs has taken multiple generations to to happen, it's going to take us multiple generations to unwind it. Sure. That's really interesting. If, if you don't mind, Britton. Yeah. You mentioned 15% of Americans are using cannabis more or less. When a state legalizes it in some capacity, let's pretend they go full recreational, anybody can buy it like a Colorado, does the legalization of cannabis in in a state drive out the illegal drugs, the illegal uh, personnel, the people that are dealing it uh, not legally? Does that have a correlation or is there none? Um, it, It really actually depends on the program. And so if the program rolls out with prices that are um, more in line with the illicit market, it works. In the state of California, it was an abject failure. And here's why. California has one of the most entrenched illicit markets in the country. They came out and they taxed it at 50%. And so they artificially raised the price way higher than the illicit market. And so do you think anybody's going to go buy from the legalized market if the tax rate's 50%? Right. No, but it's gonna... regulated, but it's better. It's yeah. safer. Why wouldn't I? I'm paying for the not getting paranoid, you yeah. know, or yeah, ex- <laughs> something like exactly. that. Exactly. And so, you know, you have to be a realist about creating markets that are going to work economically. Yeah. Do you think, you know, that brought up something um, with me back to the fentanyl, like with like that stuff lacing and like, like, maybe that is something that's going to push it because there's such a fear of how how laced some of this stuff is. Do you think that that helps the industry? Well, I think it's not just about, you know, you know what other stuff is there. You have molds, mildews, heavy metals. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of your, um, your pesticides, lots of your fertilizers are not designed to be combusted. And so if I go to Home Depot and I'm buying yeah. a spray on, you know, fertilizer or pesticide that was designed for a tomato to which I eat, mm-hmm. you add fire to that, you're getting a third chemical compound that's never been studied before. Mm. And so you have to understand it's it, there's there's a lot that goes into testing that's that's, that's, a good point. that's way down the, the line that yeah. you've got to think about. And so 
you know, taking things into the light is always better than keeping them in the dark. So what if you have a company that operates throughout the, um, the multiple states, federally regulated, yet in those states, cannabis is legal? How do we, how do you treat that? And then all of a sudden there's an employee who's using cannabis, but it's a federally regulated company and it's because it's breaking federal law, right? Even though it's okay. So as of today, that person cannot work at that company. And so, uh, you know, states have started instituting employment protection laws, but if you have federal contracts, you're still beholden to the federal law. Yeah. Um, and so the, the feds still have purview over everything. And like, for example, you know, we talked earlier about these insurance companies, payroll companies, all these companies, if they have a federal contract, they can't work with me and they won't work yeah. with me. And they're not yeah. going to risk their license to be able to help right. a small company like me. And they're not going to. Yeah. And so the, and so when we talk about safe banking, and earlier we talked about that spider web of laws and regulations. That's a great example of how many regulations have to be unwound in order to right. actually get to a place of normalcy. Well, mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Fed real quick, Mackie. So two-part question, but do you foresee the federal government decriminalizing uh, cannabis? And uh, what was the other one? Is that, well, let's start with that one because I think I forgot the second part of my question, but that's the, really the gist of it. Do yeah. you see a, a future for the feds decriminalizing it? Well, we, uh, the answer is no. Um, not anytime in the near future. Um, if we look at the way the political cycle is going to play out, we have an election coming up in you know roughly two years. Um, based on the polling right now, you're probably going to see a change of administration. Most likely it's going to be another red wave. Um, there's going to be no love for a lot of progress on legalization. Um, I think what you're going to see is incremental steps over the next decade. It's going to start with banking. It's then going to go to probably IRS tax relief. And you're going to see incremental steps until I believe that there'll be some sort of either Supreme Court uh, case that forces them into kind of overturning stuff. Um, And then you'll start to see interstate commerce. But I I doubt it's going to be within the next decade. And then is that the reason why the federal government continues to spread misinformation? I look up at the the federal CDC guidelines regarding cannabis to prepare for this interview, they say things like cannabis is addictive and, and all these things that knowing you and redoing a lot of reading on the subject, I don't believe are true. Why do they continue to spread misinformation? Well, again, nothing has been studied. Zero study. Hasn't happened. There's been no study. The University of Mississippi is the only the only organization that's been growing uh, cannabis for research for the last 20 something years, and they intentionally ha- ran a bad program. And so we have, you know, we've t- lost 50 years plus of research opportunities to really understand the impacts. The fact is we don't know a lot and we're going to try to figure it out. And there's going to be some good and there's going to be some bad, but overall it's going to be less harmful than cigarettes and alcohol. I can tell you that. Are, are the psychedelics like speeding past the cannabis? Cause you know, I, you talk about this and no studies and it seems like in some States I've heard that now they can do the psilocybin and the, like all that stuff. And it's like, man, is cannabis being left behind while they jump to all these other psychedelics? No, I I understand that there is a, there's a psychedelic revolution going on right now. There's some Mm -hmm. amazing stuff being done. Um, If anybody's interested in learning more about that, you have a fantastic person here in the state of Texas, Tim Ferriss, if you've ever listened to his podcast before. He's a real psychedelic warrior. Mm -hmm. You got things like uh, Hamilton Morris and Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have schools like Johns Hopkins has founded the Hopkins School for Consciousness uh, Consciousness, and then Berkeley's recently founded a a school with the help of Tim Ferriss. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing right now, as we talked about earlier, is there's an epidemic of suicide. There's an epidemic of unhappiness. And, you know, I've spent a little bit of time trying to understand where this all comes from. And it really comes from the way that our brains are built. And in today's age, when we're always on our cell phones, we're always being stimulated, we live in our prefrontal cortex. And what psychedelics seem to be doing is allowing us to release that prefrontal cortex and really observe our behaviors. And the studies that are coming out now on psychedelics are unbelievable. And so there's a fantastic organization called MAPS. Um, that's doing a study right now on MDMA with vets with treatment resistant PTSD. Mm-hmm. And they, ha- I don't quote me on this. I, I don't remember what the last study said, but they had something like a 90% cure rate 
and they're helping and they're fixing vets. Yeah. And the data has become so powerful. And what they've learned is, is how not to do it like they did in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. What happened in the 1960s, it became recreational use so fast that people ignored the this, this scientific efficacy. Mm-hmm. MAPS intentionally has slow rolled this thing to make sure that the data is so overwhelming that nobody can say you're just trying to legalize party drugs. Yeah. And so what I think is going to happen because our antipsychotics have been so ineffective in actually helping people feel better that we, we all know how bad depression is. We all know how bad anxiety is. We all have a family member. We all have a friend. And when somebody's hurting that much and you can actually finally give them something that works, I mean, it's going to be a miracle movement. Mm-hmm. And not only that, there's hundreds of different types of compounds that have never been studied before. Um, there's a guy named Sasha Shulgin out of Berkeley and, and many other people um, that had tons of compounds that just never got researched. Well, are they trying to lump marijuana in with that? Like they're all about? still a Schedule One. Everything is still a Schedule One based based on the Controlled Substances right. Act. Mm. Now, why they've opened it up a little bit on psychedelic research, all this stuff is still being really held back. Mm-hmm. And so, like I, you know, the way that we get this to start moving is start showing some profit to the drug companies. Hate to say it, but you know, let those guys start showing some profit interest and they can get stuff overturned. Mm-hmm. And so I think what MAPS is doing right now, which is interesting, so some of the problem with psychedelics is going to be the delivery. And what I mean by that is they've got to create a network of therapists that are qualified to actually treat people for this. Mm-hmm. And everything's about set and setting and putting people in environments where they can mm-hmm. feel comfortable. So the distribution of these and the success of these is going to be critically based on how that network of therapists works. Um, but it's a very, very exciting time. And I think there's the, you know, between cannabis and psychedelics, there's going to be a huge movement over the next decade to say what in the actual, you know, hell did we do with the war on drugs? Yeah. Like it's, it's been a, it's been a, I think we're going to look back and, and really realize what a tragedy the war on drugs was. No doubt. No doubt. Let's, so go ahead. Say, let's, if we can get back into the cannabis yeah. uh, lane again real quick and maybe get a little gr- more granular for, for people who don't know, yep. I, think, I want this to be a learning uh, episode Great. for people, but cannabis really is in three major categories. You know, you have your sativa, indica and yep. CBD. Could you give us kind of a brief outline of those three? If, the, if, if I can keep it to those. Yeah. Three? So, so first of all, don't get so caught up in indica, sativa and, and all this other stuff. First of all, and please, 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 less is more. Okay. Less is more. When you're first experimenting with cannabis, go real slow, especially with edibles. See what the dosage amount is for, for new people that are getting into cannabis. Start with two and a half milligrams. Don't go over that. If you want to get crazy, go five. Do not go 10. Do not go 15. Do not go 20. If somebody made something at their house, eat a tiny little piece of it. <laughs> do not eat a big piece of it. I call it the tequila effect. You remember you were in high school and you thought it would be a good idea to drink an entire bottle of tequila. Then you didn't drink a bottle of tequila for like 20 years. It's the same thing with edibles. Mm-hmm. If you go too hard to the hole too fast, you're not going to come back anytime soon and you're going to have a miserable time. This one's not working. I better take <laughs> another one. Well, you hear these stories, especially about the edibles, even with like people our parents' age who just go yeah. nuts on it as well. Like like the same. But I would even argue too, like there's a slow rise with, you know, booze hit you fast, right? Yep. Yep. And there's there's got to be something with the poisonous nature of it in your body. Yep to where there's something that moves at a different well, so, speed, all right, right? So you're talking fat soluble versus water soluble chemicals. Okay, that's the difference. And that's why it takes so long. But see, what they're working on now is all sorts of micro emulsion technologies. It will hit you just as fast as alcohol. Oh, okay. And so, and yeah. so we just, again, you have to understand there's been no tech transfer into cannabis, period. There's a wall between academic research and us any sort of foodborne technology, we can't access. Like we're not allowed to work with universities. We're not allowed to work with food scientists. All those guys have gotten dollars from the U.S. government over the years. They can't talk to us. And so cannabis is being artificially held back in terms of innovation by this federal prohibition. Mm. And so what you're going to see next in the next wave of cannabis is going to be low dose beverages. Think, I've seen it. Like yeah. they've already started to it, advertise. Because like, let's think about it. Like, all right, so we all have friends that are going to be cannabis phobic, right? Let's go to the great state of Texas. There's going to be all these people. They're going to be kind of curious, but they're all trained in the dogma of alcohol. Think about our socialization. Mm-hmm. You eat a gummy, you're kind of sitting there by yourself. It's not a very social experience eating a gummy, right? You can smoke joints, right? But like a lot of people don't like to smoke anymore. And that's cool. I, I get that. I, I don't like to consume tons of smoke. So if we think about it, it's something in our hands, something to be social. 
And you part know, of the ritual there. It's part of the ritual. And so if we can give people low-dose seltzers that have great flavors, no calories, no hangovers, you get up and go to work the next day, mm-hmm. um, it's a more functional type thing to, to have. And what we're going to see is that 16% of population, 15% of population, it's going to slowly start to grow, but it's really going to be the innovation of products that's going to grow the market share. Alcohol is roughly about 55% of total population consumed. Cannabis is only 16%. So there's going to be massive growth in population, but it's going to come from innovation and products. Well, are you doing that though for benefit of pro- like profits or are you doing that for like what for? I'm doing know? the benefit of me. Like I like when I go out, there's nights that I don't want to drink. Like I hate drinking on Sunday. Like I'm not a Sunday drinker. I, I like to be fresh on Monday morning. Like if I could have a two and a half milligram beverage, I'd much rather have that, be able to go to parties and be social as opposed to walking around with nothing in my hand. Like when you're at a party and you're a non-drinker um, or you just choose not to drink that day, your friends are on you like, why aren't you drinking? Why aren't you drinking? If you have a you know a can in your hand and it's two and a half milligrams, it's you feel more kind of into the party vibe. Well, you know, you say that about a Monday in the fresh. I mean, I got to say that the pot thing, it there's a longer shelf life in your system. I think that the stuff stays with you though and kind of the foggy brain and, and stuff like that. Yeah, too, that's right? all based on the, the amount that you consumed. But again, if it's water soluble, it's going to pass through your system a lot faster. You're, what you're talking about is how fast we metabolize something. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about the way that we metabolize an oil, it's like a slow roller coaster and then it's slow on the way down. When it's with these micro emulsions, it's up and it's down just like alcohol. It's Okay, so with the oils on that, like the stuff that you guys are producing, do you oversee the like manufacturing those oils? Cause that's a real big thing. It's like, you don't know what's in these oils. They're getting, I mean, it's like everyone's saying the flower's got the smoke aspect. That's bad for you. Use the oil based or the vape stuff. And it's, and then it's like, well, the oils are made of really well, bad for, stuff. First of all, um, on cannabis smoke, there was a long-term study done on cannabis smokers and, and cannabis is not a carcinogen. So it's really not bad for your lungs. So it's not like a pack of cigarettes. Well, it's not like a pack of cigarettes, but you know, if you're buying it from a listed market, you don't really know what's in it. Okay. That's first of all. Secondly, when it comes to the oils, anybody that comes from a legalized market is overseeing all the the production. It's being tested by a third party, meaning we don't test it internally. We send it out to a state-sanctioned lab. We get a certificate of analysis. It comes back telling us every single thing that's in it. It then goes straight from us to a regulated channel. Um, Who oversees that, though? The state? Uh, the labs, the, yeah, they're, they're certified by the states. The state mm-hmm. oversees the labs, but okay. they're not run by the state. Are you having to pay them yeah. to do these things? Oh yeah, yes. so they're charging you to be regulated. That that is correct. Okay. You're paying license fees, you're paying testing fees, I and mean, you're paying you know fees out the wazoo. So the state the is benefiting, even though like for instance, Maryland is not a recreational, but you're still having to pay the state to do these tests just so you can be in business. That's correct. Interesting. Well, if we can dug, d- dive into Maryland real quick, yep. since that's where you operate. You guys are focused on getting uh, recreational uh, passed. Do you see that coming? And uh, what how, what does that do for the Maryland market if we can stick in your area? So we have question four on the ballot this year in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the question says, you know, would you like to see adult use cannabis starting in July of 23? Uh, we're expecting a great turnout. We expect it to pass. And we expect to have adult use sales in Maryland starting uh, the back half of 23 to January 24. So we're very excited about that. It's going to be a huge boost to the market. So a lot of people don't realize that, you know, medical markets are really difficult to operate in because of the illicit market. Mm -hmm. If you think about all the CBD shops that you see, all the vape shops, they're all selling THC. See, a lot of people don't understand there is zero difference between hemp-derived THC and cannabis-derived THC. It's the exact same thing. One happens to be regulated and one does not. In 2018, uh, the the U.S. government passed the Farm Bill, which legalized hemp. And within hemp, what people are doing is manipulating um, Delta-8 and Delta-10. And those are what gets you high. They're concentrating it. There is absolutely no difference between that and what I sell. It's the exact same thing. So, but let's go back to like, is one plant like a female and the other, like what is the kind of the raw deal on that? If I brought in two plants right next to each other and they were both flowering, you could not tell the difference. Between a CBD or or what? Between hemp and But but They're all the same plant. And so if you looked at them when they were flowering, they'd all look the same. The only way you could tell the difference is when we ran the analyticals on it. That's the only way you could tell. And what does that look like? Like what is that? What? So one is going to be really high in CBD. 
mm-hmm. and one's going to be and the other's going to be high in THC. But what do they, they they crush it down and then put it under my like? What's uh, the- so so what they'll do is they'll take it and they'll put it through um, an HPLC. Um, or other types of testing, and then they'll be able to tell you everything that's within the plan. And so they'll test it for a spectrum of uh, all sorts of cannabinoids. They'll test it for terpenes, and you'll be able to see a full spectrum of the chemicals that are in that plan. Okay. And then so one will test really high with CBD? One will say, yep, that's exactly right. And the other one will high higher THC? High THC, that's correct. Is that change the indica sativa thing? or, or Well, it's so, not so like when that? we think about indica and sativa, I mean, that really is more of a morphology question. You know, you know, sativa is growing more, you know, on the equator. Indicas are really traditionally from like, you know, mountainous regions with shorter growing time. Really what makes the difference between sativas and, and indicas is really the terpene profiles. Um, one tends to be, you know, a little bit more kind of, uh, you know, racy and uppity because of the terpene profile. Um, and so they're just, they're different terpene for, for profiles and that's what really kind of gets you different, but you might, your biology, you might use a sativa and it might make you tired. It's really kind of depends on the biology of the person consuming on how it impacts them. And so that's why I say, don't get caught up with indica and sativa. And then the other thing is like with most gummy products or most edible products, when it says, you know, um, indica sativa, it's marketing. It, there's yeah. there's no difference. So what happens is most gummies are made out of something called a product called distillate. And so what we do is we make a crude oil that's further refined into a, an oil with just THC in it. Mm-hmm. So think about it as a, a, like a one note song. It's just the THC. There are no terpenes in it. We, they now might add terpenes back to it, like botanical terpenes. What would that do? It adds flavor, you know, That's basically. It? Yeah. And so when people are like, oh, you know, this one does this and do that. It's like, you're just, it's psychosomatic. You're falling totally. from the marketing. Yeah. So on that, what causes the paranoia? Um, THC. So like when too you, much of it? Too much THC can cause paranoia for sure. Yeah. It's like a side effect or something. And, and it's, or, but well, some it, people like would get more like paranoid. Well, uh, so, others, right? so, you know, one of the big things with psychedelics or, or any drug or THC is your mindset. If you go into it nervous already and like, oh my God, what is this going to do to me? And you're all tensed up. You're going to be more prone to paranoia anyway. And that's why like, I cannot stress enough. Start with a really, really, really tiny dose. Get over the fear, get over the anxiety. Don't do too much where you're going to have a bad time. Pay attention, and, kids. And slowly get into doing things. And that way you don't have a bad time. But a lot of people for the first time, they take what's called a standard dose. And this really came out of Colorado at 10 milligrams. Mm-hmm. 10 milligrams is a lot. Like, you know, if I gave my wife 10 milligrams, she would hate me. Like it would take her two weeks to talk to me again. Like, you know, I, I would start her off with like a milligram like maybe two milligrams and so, let her get over the anxiety of actually using cannabis. Were, did you use like CU Boulder where you yep. went? Like, was it like full on? Were you just one of those guys? I went to like, smoke pot and ski. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like wake and bake kind of thing. Oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. 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 And then, and it was, and then, but there was a lapse in the time between it coming to legal and not with you. So. Well, it lapsed with me too. So I went to the university of Colorado, you know, I, I, I smoke cannabis every day you know, try to go skiing with my friends whenever I could. And then after I got out of that, I actually went into investment banking. When I left Colorado, I couldn't access good cannabis anymore. And I stopped using cannabis. I didn't know where to get it. Didn't try to find it. You know, when I did find it, you know, it was the typical, you know, the the Mexican dirt weed. I didn't have any interest. And there was probably a good, you know, 10 years that I just, just stopped using it because I couldn't get it anymore. So you were kind of a connoisseur at that time of it. Like you, as much as you could be when there wasn't a regulated system, you yeah. just had to know the guy and find the guy. But like Colorado has always had a robust, you know, illicit market. And it was always known for high quality cannabis, same as Oregon. Because of the growth, do they grow it there or? Oh just, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mackie, real quick, before we move away from the terpenes, explain what a terpene is and why that's important in yeah, so um, so all plants have terpenes. While Brenton keeps drinking on air, <laughs> so all plants have terpenes. You think about when you I'm cut thirsty. your, you think about when you <laughs> cut your grass, you know that grassy smell. Yeah, that's an example of a terpene. And mm-hmm. so all plants have this natural occurring substance that gives them smells and aromas. And cannabis happens to have a lot of them. And there's basically three buckets of terpene profiles for cannabis. There is uh, petroleum or gas. You ever hear people talk about that weed's gassy because it mm-hmm. smells kind of like burnt tires or, or, or petroleum. Yeah. Then you have uh, berry and then you have citrus. Good. And then like, so you should be able to rub the cannabis flower to be able to smell it and be able to kind of isolate it relative to kind of what terpene bucket it falls into. All right, uh, hold on. It's a terpene question. Okay. Can't ask, does it, does cannabis it have the highest surfing terpenes, or terpene? terpenes than any other plant? Cause it's such a distinct smell, right? When it, yeah. Or if we took like the, 
plant there and burned it, would it smell the same? It kind of well. Like- so um, the answer is I don't know. Okay. Um, I have no clue. Um, it does have a lot of terpenes. It does have a lot of aroma. Um, but often when you're smoking a joint or you smell that burnt smell, yeah, you know, that's more of the biomass green stuff. When you're when you the psychoactive ingredient in cannabis is is the trichome. So on the leaf surface of every single cannabis flower is something that looks like a little mushroom and it's clear. And that's where all the cannabinoids are are, are, are within the plant. They actually are not in the plant. They're actually on the surface of the plant. And so when we extract cannabis, we're actually washing those trichomes off the surface of the plant. And then we're taking those and collecting them. And so, you know, some of the more popular products now are solventless products where we actually don't use any sort of chemicals to actually take those off the plants. We're actually just using ice water or an ice bath, removing those trichome heads and collecting them and freeze drying them. That is crazy. It is crazy. It's like people are getting into ice baths and so are Well, the, what's wonderful about it is you get a real ex- true expression of what the plant tastes like and, and what it's, it's, its morphology is. It's like you can really taste the plant because mm-hmm. you're not getting all that green material in it. Do people mix it? Like, like let's try to grow not just the different types of the marijuana, but like with some other plant cannabis we got to get you saying cannabis it's not marijuana it's sorry I, I keep using the bad word right <laughs> like the total racist word sorry yes yeah. we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get everybody saying the right word yeah um can like do they uh i mean i'm sure people are trying all kinds of growing technique like you know to flavor it before it comes yeah out. look i mean there's there's you know most of the genetics in the united states come from you know illicit or small grows that's where the breeders really lie there is not large-scale industrial breeding in the united states because there's no revenue source behind it mm-hmm. um and so the best breeders out there are guys that have been doing it for 20 30 years and they have you know uh, smaller type cultivation setups that really really know what they're doing and they're all different they're they're breeding for different characteristics and they're always trying to find something new but the the, the genetic game is ne- is always changing. Mackie, explain why CBD is everywhere these days and what's, as brilliant as you can, what's going on with CBD? And why is it such a huge craze these days? I, 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 the CBD market has always been a head scratcher to me. Um, I truly don't really understand it. I think it's the novelty of CBD. I also think it relaxes people. It, it is good for, you know, some pain relief and some anti-inflammatory properties. Um, you know, but for me, I, I think the CBD thing is a little bit overdone and, and truly I, I don't understand. But it. there is definitely a, a use for it. There's oh a yeah, no, it. no, for sure. I mean, I, I think it can be a great product for a lot of people, depending on what the ailment is. Um, I don't, I don't claim to be a medical professional, but you know, a lot of people use it for anti-inflammatory type stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it, it, it's like with any product also, where is it coming from? How is it produced? What's the concentration? What's the quality of the product? CBD is really difficult to navigate because it's not regulated mm-hmm. anymore. And so like you really have to know where your CBD products are coming from in order to know if they're any good at all or if in fact they are CBD. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was about to say like as soon as they get unregulated, like everybody floods the market, right? Well, think about what happened with this vitamin E acetate stuff. Do you guys remember that? It was like 2019 or something like that. Crystallizing your lungs or something. With the vape carts that were killing people. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. And so basically, you know, somebody from, I I believe it was was just some Chinese oil was filling vape carts up, sticking random cooking oil in it, sending it out and telling everybody that it was, you know, cannabis oil. And I mean, when you have an unregulated market, this is the stuff that happens. And so- you know, I, I would never recommend buying CBD from the gas station. Mm. And if you go anywhere in Texas, they're selling Delta 8 at every single gas station mm. in the state of Texas. And I dare any any public official to go eat some of those Delta 8s and see how strong they are because they are really strong. Mm-hmm. It's going to take one kid getting behind a car and killing a bunch of people to realize that these things need to be regulated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's take this great state of Texas, which we sit in today. Why would Texas benefit? We covered a few of these things, but why would Texas benefit from legalizing uh, cannabis, which we're not going to do anytime soon, apparently, but what would it do to this drug that we're, that we're discussing? Today? Well, I mean, obviously you guys are proximate to, to Mexico and, you know, most of the illegal narcotics in the United States are, are flowing through the state of Texas and Arizona. Um, a lot of that is cannabis and giving any more money back to the cartels is, is a bad idea. The rest of your cannabis is coming from Oklahoma and, you know, there's a lot of it coming in right now. And so, you know, right, it's being grown there. It's being grown there. And so I think, you know, taking the illicit market, which you have, it must be multi-billion here in Texas. It's probably, if I had to guess, somewhere in the order of, you know, 10 to $15 billion. Taxing that market, regulating that market, creating real jobs, training people for the jobs of the future, you know, giving people 401ks, giving them health insurance, 
that market is existing, but nobody in the state of Texas is benefiting from it. Indeed. Let's talk about your company, Colta, for a second. Yeah. Founded in 2015. What, how are things going and what's going on there? Uh, things are good. Um, we're in the last year of medical markets. The sales are a little tough this year. Typically in the last year of a, of a medical market, they kind of slow down right before adult use. Um, but we're located in a town called Cambridge, Maryland, uh, which is this wonderful town on the eastern shore. Uh, Cambridge was a cannery town uh, that was owned by the Phillips Corporation. And basically after World War II, uh, the town kind of died. And so back in 2014, 2015, we went to this town and found this old manufacturing plant and said, we'd love to be here. Now, we'd already been to 10 or 14 other towns and on the eastern shore that told us to pound, pound sand. They wanted <laughs> nothing to do with cannabis. And this town said, you know what, bring it on. And it's been a wonderful marriage ever since. So we're about 150 employees. Wow. I think we've invested, you know, millions and millions of dollars into Cambridge. Um, and we absolutely love being there. Um, and so we're excited for our growth there. We're excited for our growth in Maryland and just really excited for for adult use, hopefully, to, to, to be coming soon. Are they happy with their decision to like a lot You know, of it's funny you mentioned that. I was just talking to um, Ricky Travers. Big shout out to Ricky, who's the uh, president of the county council. And he says, do you remember when we sat around that table eight years ago and we were willing to give you a shot if you did what you said you were going to do? And I said, I sure do. And he said, you did exactly what you said you were going to do. That's a big nice thing. Job. Yeah, nice it was job. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. So on that, you know, a lot of people would argue that people who smoke marijuana all day, maybe don't. Cannabis. How many times do we have to go over this? Sorry. Good Lord. <laughs> I swear to God, I'm not doing that on purpose. <laughs> who smoke cannabis all day may not do what they say they're going to do. You know, we got a generation of Again, kids. Again, see, you're your like, war on drugs. This is your perpetuating no, no, stereotype. Look, I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> there's a cr tremendous amount of content coming out of the West Coast that you said has one of the most unique illicit drug so, markets. So, so I'm let's just talk going about that, that real quick. You're, I will yeah. tell you the, 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 the most active people I know are the heaviest cannabis users and they stay away from alcohol. Most of your pro athletes, most of the, the serious athletes that I know never touch alcohol and they're heavy cannabis users. And so I think our stereotype of cannabis users being lazy is one that was intentionally perpetuated. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Not, yep. mm -hmm. uh, the future of future in this country, we've talked about the feds never decriminalizing it. What, what do you, do you have any thoughts on where we're going with this? We have, you know, 36, 37 states now have legalized at yep. some capacity. Yep. What's what's the next 10 years look well, like? Well, so I think it's a really interesting time because I think, you know, the next two years are going to be a little bit slow, but by 24, you're going to see most of the East Coast have legalized adult use cannabis. Now, this is not California or Colorado or Oregon. This is kind of your uptight, you know, East Coast, you know, cities. Yeah. And so I think from a social perspective, it's a really interesting time to watch these uptight East Coast states all of a sudden flip to be, you know, cannabis is going to be everywhere. And so I'm excited just to watch the social experiment because you're going to have New York go, New Jersey go, Maryland go, probably Virginia go, Pennsylvania go, mm -hmm. um, Massachusetts is already gone, Connecticut is going. So it's like, it's going to sweep really fast. And then there's going to be Texas just sitting out there by itself. No, just kidding. Um, but it's going to be fun to watch to see kind of just what happens socially. Like, Think about this. All of a sudden, you know, is there going to be, you know, people smoking joints at kids' birthday parties? That's going to be kind of socially new, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And there's going to be all these taboos that we're going to begin to break and, mm -hmm. and to break down. And it's going to be awkward for a little bit, right? It's going to be, it's going to be kind of a strange time. And That's like, awkward for me to think about that. You know, so, so actually one of my friends, uh, you know, said to me one time, and this was a head scratcher, he goes, how long is it going to take until you can be as comfortable smoking a joint at a kid's birthday as drinking a glass of wine? I don't I know. Can't even imagine that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. You think when we're like grandparents, we'll see that in our <laughs> lifetime? I don't know. I think the stigma is too high. It may be a barrier we can never overcome. You know, but when you talk about those those states flipping, it would be interesting too to look at the average age of that elected official, right? Yeah. Like, as I mean, these elected officials get younger and they've kind of grown up around this a little bit more, and the stigma's not the same. Like, I would certainly say our generation views it differently than maybe our parents' generation. And then I know the younger ones, like I know the younger ones who are in high school and college right now view it much different, more yep. differently. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of them, I do think, gravitate towards this form of recreation rather than the booze, you know, stuff right. too. So, I, see, I, I, I call I, alcohol booze. Like it's the yep. same thing as the marijuana cannabis <laughs> kind of issue. No, um, I think you're right. I think there is a generational shift about to happen in consumption patterns. I think... 
there's going to be less alcohol. I think there'll be more cannabis. I think you're going to see uh, less trending towards inebriation. I mean, if you look at binge drinking, it's way down with younger kids. And so I just, yeah, there's a big, there's a big cultural shift about to happen. Well, and I also think when you hit economic hard times, it's amazing what states, what governments start looking at, you know, I mean, some, some will always hold their ground, but a lot will say, Hey, look, that pandemic wore us out. Then all these things going on at a national economic level, we gotta we gotta stir a little bit of money coming in. Well, and, and states right now are sitting on record piles of cash. You know, mm-hmm. as we can see from our inflation numbers, all this COVID money is still sitting around. Yep. I mean, they're gonna unwind that cash over the next three years, and they'd be looking for new sources of revenue. Because you know, one thing we know that we're terrible at is balancing our books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the need for other sources of revenue is not gonna go away. Um, and unfortunately, that's probably gonna want to be one of the key drivers. To, well, to when you talk about the tax inflation, like the, I mean, those are huge tax numbers that yep. you discussed. No doubt. Mackie, so. could you have? Do you have any crazy weed stories you can share with us? I, I have many, many, other, many, otherwise? many crazy ones. But as a word of caution, I will tell you the word, the most recent one that I heard. Uh, I'm on a group text uh, with a bunch of my buddies, as I'm sure many of your listeners are. And uh, one of my best friends, a guy by the name of Jeff Bogart, uh, sister-in-law, was at- uh, Not naming out. any names. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm naming his name. Tag. Yeah, tag. Uh, was, uh, I believe it was his mother-in-law or somebody was at a, uh, was at a party and um, had left their gummies out. Mm. And somebody in the family decided to, thought they were just candies and ate the whole thing. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. They didn't have a good, uh, didn't have a good night. So put it that night? way. Night? How about yeah. a month? Yeah. You know? So that wasn't, uh, that wasn't so good. So anytime you have any sort Loose of cannabis gummies, items, yes. you got to keep them locked up. You got to keep them away. You got, you can't be leaving things out for, for people to get hurt on it. Well, but you're talking about something that with a pretty high potency, like when you're in that state, then you're going to try to clean things up. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as many people may attest, not me personally, right. but, uh, it, you know, eating those and then trying to clean up after yourself is probably not, you oh, may, re- you may yeah. prepare beforehand, you know, I read somewhere that like half of all ER calls generally yeah. probably 40 feet are, are people that have taken too many gummies or they, it doesn't work. I'll take another one. There is These a, are half of the calls that, that BedStar is being sent to. to well, help. there's a great uh, clip on YouTube that you can find if you Google it. Police officers eat too much THC. Yes, have you seen, have heard this that. one before? Yes, I have. So it's, two yeah. cops stole marijuana or cannabis. Now you got me saying it. Um, <laughs> cannabis from uh, the impound or whatever it is. And they made brownies. They ate them and freaked out and then called 911 because they thought they were dying. I think they both got arrested. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking of children uh, in in cannabis, is there? Is, I'm just curious your thoughts. Uh, this may be too too philosophical, but is there an age too young to try cannabis? Or when did you first try it, J Dub? Uh, what do you mean? I'm still <laughs> waiting for that to happen. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think generally, you know, waiting later in life is always a better better idea. I think you know, with brain development and adolescent development, trying to wait longer is always better. Um, I think if there's a you know medical necessity. I think starting at a really young age is, yeah. is important. And we have seen that, you know, cannabis can have serious impact on all sorts of different disorders for children. Um, but, you know, if you're using it in a recreational capacity, I mean, starting later in life is, is much smarter, 21 plus, um, you know, it's just, I, I think abusing anything is, is not good. Well, and I mean, good on you for that advice too, because as you've said, this entire show, it's an unregulated industry, you know, right now they're not given the opportunity to regulate and to go in there and research and study. And as a result, that would probably give testament to just waiting even longer. Well, and right now, I mean, all the hemp derived intoxicants, Delta eight, Delta 10 are readily available at every single gas station that you pull into right now. Across the country? For the most part, only a few states have begun to regulate it, but like these kids have full access to all this stuff right now. Yeah. And I think when parents become start to understand what Delta 8 and Delta 10 are and how strong they are, and there's really not a lot of difference at the concentration of the Delta 9, which I sell, mm-hmm. um, they'll realize. And that's why I challenge people. If you don't think it's an intoxicant, go try it. And then once regulators realize how strong these products are and people are getting behind the wheel afterwards, they're going to know that these things have to be regulated. Do you eat it or smoke it? Uh, you know, for the eat. most part, you you eat it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're usually in cookie form, gummy form. Sometimes they're in liquid shot form. Um, but yeah, it's it's mostly it's it's mostly. I was wondering why I consumed. saw you outside of Ace Hardware last night. I'm <laughs> walking in well, circles. Just You're not very the, handy, are you? I did it at the Seven Eleven across the street. Oh shoot! I probably shouldn't. I had been at the Easy Mart. That's probably generic enough, right? Yeah. 
Well, Mackie Barch, we yeah, appreciate the you, time. Mackie. This is yes. fascinating stuff. Great we appreciate you here. opening up your brain to the world because, uh, you know, not that we know everything, but you know a lot about this topic. It's really good to know the truth. And I believe you're coming at this at the, from the right place. You speak a lot of things that most people don't know, and I love that. So thank you very much. Before we go, we always like to ask our guests uh, uh, one last question, but familial affairs aside, no marriage, no kids, what's the best day of your whole life? Oh, uh, best day of my whole life. God, put me on the spot. I'd have to think that's, about that's that That's intentional to be, to be done like that. Gosh, I don't, I, man. Perhaps it's with cannabis. Oh, it's probably, uh, I, uh, yeah, I have a hard time on that one. I get, I, I don't know the answer to that one. What if I I'll, offered up, I'll bet it felt pretty good. When actually, I got said, it. I got yeah. it. It took me a minute. <laughs> it was the first time I got to go skiing with my boys. Oh, nice. Oh, cool. Yeah, that was like one of the coolest things that I've ever done, actually getting out there and going skiing with my kids. In so you, Colorado? you brought the yeah, kids Colorado. into it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got my kids into skiing when they were real young. And uh, getting out and skiing with my kids is my favorite thing to do. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. It is my absolute favorite well, thing to do. Well, since we don't want you to use family, but we'll, we'll, we'll accept that answer. Yeah, sorry. Right. Okay. I forgot. It's okay. It's family. okay. It's a pretty I good thing. you said family born or something. Well, anything to do with family, yeah. but that's, that's gotcha. a pretty good. You're skiing at least. You're not doing... Yep. Mackie Barch, Colta, thank you very much for joining us. Thank family. you for having Thanks, me. Thank you, yeah, thank you CapTex Bank. We've enjoyed uh, you letting us do this. Hopefully you're still our sponsor next week, but uh, <laughs> we are grateful for you. Thank you, yeah. Mackie. Thank you, Brenton. Thank you, guys. Look forward to it, Cheers. Thank you. <laughs>